All right. Let's get this out of the way first. The thoughts, views, and opinions expressed on Tailboard Talks Firefighter Podcast are solely those of the speakers, guests, and hosts, and do not in any way represent the thoughts or views or opinions of any other employer, partnership, or sponsor. The material and information in this podcast is for general information purposes only and should be used at the listener's discretion. Here comes the intro. Skip forward 30 seconds if you want to get right to the episode. This is the Tailboard Talk Podcast, the best health, wellness, and lifestyle resource for the fire service. We're using stories, lessons, and tips from the front lines to give a realistic view of what the job can do to us and how we can make it out alive. I'm Chris Morella, a firefighter since 03, medic since 05, full-time since 08, and promoted to lieutenant in 20. I'm also a personal trainer and strength coach, and I'm here to give you the best information and host the best discussions to make us capable and durable both on the job and away from it. So grab a heater, steal some fancy creamer from first shift, and let's go chat. You'll not, you won't feel a thing. Um, <laughs> let's see. Okay, so the, the reason I wanted to start recording, because I want to get your opinion on this quote, um, and you just talked about how when something happens and we don't address it, it takes on a mind of its own, right? And then it gets spun, and then it's like no one knows what actually happened, so it gets difficult. So I work with a guy. Mm-hmm. Smart guy, terrible, terrible Chicago accent. I mean, just the worst you've ever heard um, <laughs> to, to the point where uh, he's a hunter also. Now, this is a story on top of a story. He's a hunter also, and he goes deer hunting, okay? And he uses, uh, he does archery. And so he was describing how uh, sometimes the arrow can go so fast that you're going to shoot the deer, and it's going to basically go directly through the deer. And he was trying to say the arrow will hit both lungs. And because he talks with a terrible Chicago accent, he says, yeah, you know, it's just going to hit boat lungs and go through it. And we're like, what? Like, we're talking about boats? Like, we, so we just wrote him for, till present day about his boat having lungs and how you shoot an arrow through your boat lungs. Um, <laughs> stupid story, right? Anyways, still a smart guy. Uh, so he has this saying that nature abhors a vacuum. And um, yeah. it's for nature's first instinct to a vacuum is fill it with negative and that translates well to humans because as soon as we have a gap in that communication and there's a vacuum of knowledge we more often than not fill it with something negative and then um that something negative turns into reality and then their reality kind of takes them out of its own it's the first thing i thought of when you were saying about that that uh, gap in knowledge and information yeah it's almost like if you look around at our media and i'm talking all forms reality tv the best um scripted the news i mean just about anything the negative stuff is so much easier to accept we're so conditioned to accept the negative and nobody calls us stupid for being pessimistic we get called foolish for being hopeful oh yeah so i think that's where that gets that it's easy to believe that quote I, i think uh man I mean, it's been highlighted in the past few years, right? On both sides of any argument is whoever is most willing to raise the most aggressive questions without any kind of substance behind them is kind of looked at as like a leader, but they're not leading anything. They're just, um, they're just doing that. Stirring up shit. What are they doing? Yeah. I'm trying to think what they're doing and they're not doing anything. They're just making problems. I don't know, but it's effective. Uh, in fact, it's effective in gaining a followership and creating a lot of buzz but 
I mean, so what point do you see past that? Or like, what, when does that start to fall down? You know, do, do people who follow individuals like that ever look for more? Or are they just happy with uh, them constantly poking holes kind of obtusely in things? I mean, I can only speak for myself, which is a very, 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 very limited view compared to the whole world. But I will say that it is exhausting trying to see things from all angles it is so much easier to just eat the bullshit people feed you yeah and sometimes i wish i was more ignorant because it is blissful <laughs> yeah. you know and i'm not saying i have it all figured out i i've got my biases i've got my my things that i favor and my lens that i see through that i know is limited because I'm, I'm only one life, you know, um, all I can be is aware of the fact that I don't know anything. Um, but I will say that it's, it's, I was just talking to a girlfriend about this actually this morning and I was telling her there comes a point where you, you start working on yourself. Um, and then it becomes more exhausting, but (laughs) it's, it's just, it's just more work. And you honestly realize how much easier it is to just, stereotype yeah you just put them all together you, you, you lump people together like okay you think this way so you must also think that way we put you in that quarter and we compartmentalize i mean it's part of our coping mechanism as well it's just easier to put people in categories than to actually view the person as a person and um you know talking about like the polarity that we we've lived through the last couple of years it's always been there it's just like everything else that COVID brought out, it brought out deficiencies and it brought things to the surface that we just weren't as attuned to. Mm. Um, and I think of something and I, she, she did, I don't know if she really believes this anymore because I've only heard her talk about it once, but Bernie Brown, if you're familiar with her work, mm-hmm. yeah, she says that um, conspiracy theories are the, are emotionally satisfying conclusions. Mm. So when we don't, have anybody taking a stance on something or somebody that we trust or we are doubting ourselves and and she referred to conspiracy theories not on this big global scale she was referring to them as the story we tell ourselves about the thing that somebody said about us like oh they must be conspiring against me they must be you know they must not like me they must be still mad at me for something we tell ourselves something that becomes emotionally satisfying because we're able to give it conclusion and it's not left open-ended. And I think that's where a lot of stuff gets spun up. That's so terrifying. you're not okay. <laughs> it it's is. It's a scary thought. Because then you think about the conclusions you draw on yourself of like... Um, all the time. Yeah, well, all the time. But that like, uh, you know, those funny memes of like um, the person who constantly needs reassurance that someone's not mad at them. That means that's that me. those conclusions are drawn. That meme is about me. That's what I'm saying, though. It's cu- that means they, it's it's that is more comforting than you you not thinking that someone doesn't care about you. Than not knowing what they think about me. Bull. It is more comforting to decide that they don't like me than it is to just not know. <laughs> that is exactly what that is. Oh God! So we talked about something early uh, on a phone call before this, and you said, "Oh, we have a lot in common with that." I feel like we're gonna have a lot in common with a lot of things just based on that, <laughs> just that quick conversation. Um. Did you notice, I think I made a post about this a little bit ago, how, maybe it was an episode, um, were you able to more clearly identify, I should put it like this, do you feel like COVID gave you an opportunity to view the five stages of grief as they were going on 
uh, like a, in a way you haven't had before with people. Like you could see their anger or you could see their bargaining or you could see their, um, not necessarily their depression, but very rarely the acceptance with it. But with each um, <laughs> attitude or each action you saw that was polarizing or outspoken or in the media, you're like, oh, that seems like it fits into this category of DABDA. Like, did you, did you notice that or am I just kind of reading too far into things? No, you're not reading too far into it at all. In fact, I, I noticed it in so many aspects outside of death. There were so many examples of it. Um, just about everything hmm. could be tied back to that. And, and it's funny you bring up the five stages of grief because it's been under a lot of scrutiny. I mean, it always was yeah. um, because five stages of grief was developed in like the 1960s by, um, oh God, I'm going to forget her name. Kubler-Ross. I should know this. I've studied it for three years. Yes. Uh, Kubler-Ross was a psychiatrist and um, essentially a pioneer in the hospice world because back in the day, um, we used to, the hospital industry and and medical field used to segregate the dying Mm. um, completely. They were kind of put in this, they were tucked away. You didn't really have family seeing you. You didn't die out in, I shouldn't say out in the open, but it wasn't as embraced. Um, say to say that we embrace death today is a, a far cry from the reality. So you can only imagine how much more taboo it was <laughs> yeah. 60, 70 years ago. So she really was a pioneer. And what she did was she took her observations and her conversations with the dying and identified these five stages of grief based on their own awareness of their death. Mm. It eventually evolved to include the survivors, and I haven't read the book yet. I've actually ordered it, um, and it's just on, on a pile of books that I've that I have yet to get to because I, I told myself I couldn't read anything until I was done with with school, <laughs> as I'm starting to become. Um, but she did write a book with David Kessler, who who's kind of a, a leader in the grief grief field right now, um, and I'm curious what what they wrote together. It was the last book that she wrote before she died to my knowledge. Um, and David Kessler does teach grief in the sense of, you know, this is something that the survivor also experiences, but what the critics do is they go, well, this is outdated. This isn't peer reviewed enough. This is too rigid. This is a a linear process that doesn't actually happen. And so we need to throw the whole thing out. And I've, I've done extensive research on the criticism against it. And when you go back to her, even her original book, she addresses the exact criticisms that some of the critics have against her method. Hmm. And I'm like, did you even read her work? No. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They, yeah. They're like, they didn't, or at least to me, it seems like they didn't. And they say, well, it, it's not, you know, grief isn't linear. Not everybody experiences those things. It doesn't happen in that order. And to not do it in that order doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. Those are her fucking exact words. Right. She literally said, this is a framework. <laughs> this is this is an idea of what it might look like. It doesn't mean it happens. It literally can happen in any order at any length of time. And it can happen two at a time. And you mm. can go backwards. People will revisit grief a year after, you know, on the year anniversary and stuff like that. So... I, I just find it, she was just such an incredible contributor to this field that I refuse to give up that um, association or that that framework, that theoretical framework, yeah. um, because a few people came 
up and decided that it was outdated and bullshit and came up with 12 stages of grief instead, which oh, I refuse God. to, oh, I refuse <laughs> to adopt. No, there's an eight stages of grief. There's a seven stages of grief. There's a 12. I mean, I learned yeah. them all in grad school and I, I said, you know what, let's just stick with what's, you know, yeah. it, applicable. So anyways, that's my tangent on that. Um, oh, I love so it. I still, I, I still fall back on her. Um, I still fall back on her and her work. And I think that fundamental work is meant to evolve. Um, and I'm not going to erase the work that she did just because, you know, anyways. Yeah. Yes. Well, the I, answer I feel is, like so yes, many... we did see it. <laughs> I, well, and the, I think that's uh, a common thread in any industry or anything where the reductionist approach is so frightening because there's a lot of times where you don't want to admit that that's what um, is really going on. Like that larger, more in- inclusive phrase is scary because you don't want to be lumped into that. So you start creating words that... Um, maybe aren't, maybe it's not fear. Maybe it's something else closely similar to fear, but fear, I don't like thinking I do things out of fear. So I'm just going to say I do it out of apprehension. Um, and then you create mm-hmm. something to include apprehension when I was teaching. So I teach Dabda a little bit in injury stuff because I tell him like, you've lost something, you've lost your ability, you've lost a capacity of some sort. Um, so you're gonna have to reconcile with that. Like there's some injuries you'll never be the same from. That doesn't mean you just mm-hmm. scrap the whole thing, but you have to understand these stages because it applies to any time you lose anything. And the first picture I put up is a uh, picture of the old game Shoots and Ladders because I say, here's what grief is. You can go ahead um, for most of the game, then you hit a couple slides and you go backwards to the start, and then you jump ahead to the last step, and then you're back in the first step again. I said, it's just this ever-evolving thing. I said, you may never make it past um, bargaining. Like you might just be bargaining with this injury for the rest of your life because you can't accept, uh, you won't grieve the fact that you've lost the ability to reach overhead with your right arm. Now you're going to bargain and uh, kind of work your way around it and cause more damage. So I, I agree. I mean, I, um, so <laughs> I agree and I like the framework of it because it's simple. Um, and it also just, it lets you recognize things. I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that, but uh, yeah, the, the overcomplication of things to make people feel more comfortable is certainly a thing. One of the most polarizing, I'll say, one of the most, one theory I've gotten the most flack on is from a, oh man, I shouldn't be bringing this up without knowing what I'm talking about, but I'm just going to say it because I can always cut it out. (laughs) I'm pretty sure his name is Dr. Chuck, (laughs) first of all. He's out of Colorado. And we had him at the Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Symposium a couple years ago. And one statement one of his theories that he brought up was that all anger, all forms of anger, and he was cla- he was also redefining anger as like top shelf, uncontrollable rage. You know, when people say like they see red or they see black and they just go crazy, like that's what anger is. It's not annoyance and it's not frustration or anything like that. It's anger. Um, all anger, if you trace it back to what caused that anger, uh, it always comes back to fear. And it always comes back to fear of like one of Maslow's things or one of the foundational concepts of being human. Something like that was threatened mm-hmm. on a on a primal level and you were afraid of it being taken away or, or um, sacrificed in some sort on the account of someone else. And so you eventually get pushed to this point of anger. And I've gotten a lot of people push back on that. Um, some joking, some not. But what, do you, what does that make you think of kind of right off the bat? Well... I'd be open to hearing more about it, first of all. And I, I do definitely think that when people see red, 
um, it is primitive. Um, those that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, that of course has its own level of criticisms, but I think it's applicable. I think it's very applicable. And when, when our, I think that anger can be an indicator of a boundary being violated and a boundary being, I don't think there's any greater boundary than our needs being met. Um, and I think anger can be a very healthy emotion that we have been conditioned to believe is a, a quote unquote negative emotion, a bad emotion, especially as, um, uh, I don't know. It's 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 contextualized different um, between men and between women. Mm. I think, and I also think that um, it's not so much the anger that's a bad thing. It's how we re- react to that anger. Like, how do I embody that anger? Do I violently attack somebody, or do I let that anger fuel my ability to confront somebody and verbally tell them that they were out of line. I don't know. Like, that's just what's coming up for me. I don't know if that's the right answer or not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, well, you have to cope it, right. You have to cope with that, those emotions somehow. We're seeing that with our almost four-year-old now. He's got, we're building his coping skills. And in the meantime, we're watching him experiment with outbursts or hitting or biting or throwing, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and through that, we see that as like a failure to cope. Um, not in those technical terms where like, well, we suck as parents or he's, he's, uh, got some issues, you know, but we we sometimes fail to recognize like, oh no, he's trying to figure it out. So this mm-hmm. is an opportunity to tell him like, that was not a good coping skill. <laughs> Let's not do that again. <laughs> or the next 10 times you're going to do that. I'll tell you again, it's not a good coping skill. Um, which is or that it's okay to get angry. It's right. just not okay to bite as a response to that or something like that. Cause you know, I mean, it's, it, it, I don't know. It's, it's funny. I was just talking to my girlfriend who they announced, um, her and her now fiance announced to his kids that they were, that they were getting married. They, they told them that, that they had got engaged and they announced them. And I was asking her how they took it. And she said they were all very happy, but every single one of them cried. Like they're, hmm. I think under the age of 10. And I'm like, that's got to be so confusing for like a five-year-old to have that emotion bubble up in them and then be happy and cry. Because I do not recall <laughs> ever in my childhood crying because I was happy. Sure. That's a lot, right? Ever. Yeah. That's just a lot that you know? to do with all that. If you want to see, if you ever want to see adolescent kids cry, um, I've never not seen. Not really. I have, huh? <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I said not really. I'm just saying. <laughs> If the mood ever strikes you, I've never seen okay. more kids cry than at a wrestling meet. I've never, ever seen it. I've never wow. seen more kids cry at a wrestling meet. Why? Whether they win, they lose. Um, obviously, it's more common if they lose. But even if they try real hard, it's because it's the first time. And we, we as adults hardly ever feel it unless you voluntarily join um, like jujitsu or some kind of sport where you're physically overtaken by someone. Um but as a child, they're they're physically stifled and and absolutely overtaken by someone, and they're they're rendered powerless for seconds at a time because of physical um, the strength of someone else. And so that feeling mm-hmm. of being like unable to escape. Imagine if we just put you in a straitjacket and 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 tickled you or just wouldn't let you out. You know, wow. like that overwhelming sense of panic. Wrong. Now in a a seven year old brain, like it just it's so mm-hmm. overwhelming, and. Um, yeah, I was telling my brother because my, my nephew is a little bit older now, but at the time I was like, I've never seen so many kids cry before. And he's like, oh, every single match, 
both kids will be crying until they're, you know, in their teens pretty much uh, because just so wow. much primal stuff going on. So it's just a very interesting thing with all that emotion and, um, you know, how you, how you and handle so, it and teach it afterwards is, is absolutely crucial. Exactly. You can't just let them cry and, <laughs> and uh, ah, better luck next time. So. And, and teaching kids what, you know, not to get too far off topic here, but teaching kids what an emotion is, like giving it a name, telling them this is anger and that's okay to feel that way. Mm-hmm. It's just not okay to do this. You know, it's kind of like when we're starting the IV on kids, how many times did you tell them it's okay to scream if this hurts, but you're not allowed to kick me. You can't move your arm away from me. So you, you set those boundaries. You set them, you give them expectations and you tell them what it's going to be like. Um, but, you know, my girlfriend was like, it's because we weren't allowed to cry. We were told not to cry. We were told I'll give you something to cry about. We right. were told, you know, we we were just told to avoid these things. We weren't, and, and so it, it's really cool to see her, even as a as a stepmother, be able to, um, you know, nurture yeah. that in their home. Yeah, and what a what a truly difficult cycle too. Like it's not okay to cry, so don't do it. And then that just makes you feel <laughs> so much worse for wanting to cry that you have to cry, and then it's even worse because you're crying. Uh, it's a nightmare. Um, Okay, I'm gonna hit you with another theory <laughs> because now I'm cool. getting all these I'm getting all these uh, flashbacks here. Have you ever heard of the study? Um, well, I got to think of how to frame it first. What do you think about this? They did a study, and they said that uh, people who have their origins in the southern states of the U.S. are easier to bring to physical violence and confrontation than those of the northern states in the U.S. Uh, current day. So what they did was they took a bunch of college kids and they found out where they were from, like where their great-great-great-grandparents were from when they first um, came here or when they, where their roots were, basically. Uh, then they insulted them. So they just kept hurling insults at them uh, over and over and over again until they either got no effect or they the person the college kid wanted to confront them and like act out against them. And what they found out was that uh, basically the Southern States, you could draw into a fight by insults and Northern States, you really couldn't. And then they drew it back to, because if you're in the Southern States, you were probably a rancher or had some sort of animal livestock. And if someone was coming at you aggressively, it's always the fear that they could just take over uh, your farm and then take all your livelihood. If you're in the Northern States, you have a farm but you're usually growing crops and no one's going to come in and take all your crops from you in the middle of the night. So you can come at someone in the Northern States aggressively and you're really not threatening anything that they need for their livelihood. But the Southern States, you could be um, taking all the cows in the middle of the night. What do you think hmm. about that? that was, I'd have to look more at it, but I'm curious. That's all the details. If... There's no more, there's no more details. That's it. That's it. That's, That's it. it. <laughs> much, yeah. I would wonder, I mean, this goes back to, and I'm, I'm going to say what I'm going to say very, very conservatively, because after I started a podcast on the Huberman Lab um, about epigenetics and intergenerational imprints, and within the first 10 minutes, I went, I don't know shit about this, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been super fascinated by it, and I thought I had a grip on it, and I realized, wow, there's so much more to it. So I say this as a total novice on the topic and that is that i'd be curious what their grandparents were like and how they reacted to things how they had to fight physically to protect what was not stationary the way a crop was Mm. 
and how their coping mechanisms, how their responses, their defenses were then imprinted on the, the person who's here today. So the idea with epigenetics is that um, essentially what we do know is that from age third trimester in the womb to about age eight, kids are incredibly influenced. Um, there is this, you know, the saying that they're sponges, that they could learn multiple languages, that they could do this and that. Most of our subconscious patterns and our subconscious programming is done so before the age of eight, because up until that age, I forgot which which wavelength isn't online yet and our brain waves, but essentially we're in a hypnotic state. So we're easily influenced, hmm. right? Another point to this theory is that when, and I know that, that they, they've done this for men as well, but it's a little easier to explain um, this way is that I was in my grandmother's womb. I was in my grandmother's body at one point hmm. because when she carried my mother, my mother carried the egg that would one day create me. Hmm. So all the trauma that my mom experienced, especially in her third trimester with me, was just tip of the iceberg compared to what my grandmother also experienced and imprinted on the DNA that eventually created me. So that is what they're studying right now with epigenetics. And so when I think about some of my defenses that are not very conscious i don't just have to go back to what in my childhood created this behavior but what in my mother's and what in her mother's and when i look back at the way they were raised very very extreme poverty very unsafe conditions um i mean a life i don't ever have to know because of the work that my parents did to to give me what i have but it's it's beyond my comprehension and so I'd, I'd love to actually study. That well, sounds really interesting. If nothing else, if nothing else, you're building a fantastic case for ignorance because this is, this is mm. the most interesting and also the most terrifying talk I've had with someone in a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause I all think that... can be healed. Let me tell you that. Let me stop that right there. All can be resolved as an adult. And this is where, I have a real hard time with the idea of healing the quote unquote inner child. I fucking hate that saying, but <laughs> it's so true. It can be done. Okay. It can be done. It, it has to be done with a lot of, a lot of work with, um, with the subconscious. Hmm. And that part isn't as easy to get to, um, but it can be, I mean, you, you can influence subconscious programming um, through a lot of conscious uh, influence, which does not work very easily, in my opinion. The way I was, the, the way this was described to me, um, probably the best by Bruce Lipton, who is a he's a little bit of a mystical scientist, so he gets a little shunned in the science world, but he's a biologist um, who essentially is is a big believer in the the epigenetics field so he has this one book where he says that our so let's say you want to quit smoking and you're like all right don't ask like smoking leads to coronary artery disease it's a nasty habit my wife hates it it's a bad influence on my kids like i just want to stop and you keep smoking and you keep you know failing you keep trying to quit cold turkey and you keep failing and you quit you know whatever he says that if our habit 
with smoking is due to a subconscious process to make a decision, a New Year's resolution, a goal, a promise consciously is like yelling at a machine. Like, uh, what are those? <laughs> Why am I blanking on what these are? Do you remember when we had, no, no, no. Remember when we had, this is so pathetic right now that I'm blanking. When we had phones that had voice messages, look at those answering machines. Machine. Oh my God, we had answering machines. You're so old. So I, I promise I did not grow. I grew up with these things, okay? So we had answering machines and you'd have an outgoing message. What would you have to do to record the outgoing message? You had to find the record button. So he says that to yell consciously at our subconscious is like yelling at an answering machine and expecting it to change the outgoing message. He says, you have to find the record button. I like it. So we find the record button. And, and so you replace smoking with anything. Yeah. Drug addiction. Yeah. It's a great one. That is a good one. A lot, I mean, anything you could think of. And so the, the misconception too, and I think where these ideas get shot down is they go, Oh, well that's just an excuse for saying that isn't your fault. And it's like, I believe Mm. that are I, i'm of the belief especially as i've come through this field and worked in the medical industry and then studied mental health and psychology is that these pathological behaviors these self-destructive behaviors are not our fault but they are our responsibility i mean and that's the difference yeah that's what uh that's what robin williams told ben a bit told matt damon so mm. good, good will hunting yeah Fuck. yeah one of the best movies out there. So, <laughs> so here's the thing. We've been talking for 28 minutes. Um, <laughs> and I think people will be like, this is really cool. Who is this person <laughs> who we're talking to? I don't think I'm going to come much out of it. Usually that little intro talk is like three, four, five minutes long. And we talk about coffee or something like that. And then it's like, oh, okay, tell me about you mm-hmm. and what you're doing. That was 28 minutes already of um, theories I have no business nice. talking about and you... Uh, justifying that for me and make me feel like I'm contributing well, to this. Let, let me interrupt this. You said theories. That is exactly what they are. They're theories. They're meant to be explored, questioned, uh, entertained, but as long as we just remember, they're, they're evolving theories. Like They're going to change, and that's the hardest part is to keep our minds open to when they do. Yeah. That's well, all. As long as we're just sticking to the five stages of grief. I'm down. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's do this because I, I want to get back into it immediately. But um, distill down your path to what you're doing, the schooling you just are finishing, and what we're going to talk about the death note, uh, death communication. Let's make it a quick thing so we can get back into the uh, the the uh, Gavin. Uh, so who are you? Okay. <laughs> who are you? Well, I'm Alex. Hi. My name is Alex. You and I met on Instagram. Yeah. I am a licensed paramedic. I've been in the field of EMS since 2003. Uh, my whole adult life, basically right out of high school, um, 18 years old, became an EMT. And worked in the field till about, it's either 2016 or 17. It gets murky. I had, a severe, I had a severe back injury. So when you were talking, the analogy about a back injury, how you can heal, but you'll never, you know. You'll, you'll always live with this kind of thing and, and the grief that came along injury. I 110% um, or 100% relate to that. Um, couldn't walk, couldn't take care of myself, couldn't drive myself anywhere, couldn't shower. Um, basically had to pick between shaving the right leg or the left leg because I only had enough stamina to stand for so long. 
um, was a very humbling and traumatic experience, but that was really the path that, that was kind of the rupture that led me to the path I'm on now. So it took me a couple of years to be cleared back to full duty. And by then I had already kind of taken a different career path. I was working as the MS coordinator for a very large fire department. Um, I was already teaching paramedic CMTs and I just continued doing that more. Um, and when I decided to leave my role, my position in the, as a desk jockey, I was like, I'm done working in an office. I need out of here. I need back in the field. Um, Dr. Safine, you can go back. This was late 2019. And essentially, I applied everywhere. And then the pandemic happened and nobody was hiring because where I lived, um, it was like ghost town. I mean, there was nobody calling 911. The hospitals weren't inundated. I mean, there were places that were. Trust me, there were definitely places that were in our country, but where I lived was not one of them. So I didn't have a national registry by then either. So I couldn't take any of the contract positions that were going elsewhere. And I, I tried, I tried really hard. And then I finally had to realize, okay, maybe I'm, I'm being met with this barrier for a reason. And so I fell back more into teaching. By then I was already um, in my PhD program. So when I got injured, I finished my associates, I'm sorry, associates, my bachelor's. Um, I had started my master's. And then once I finished my master's, I was like, well, it at this point let me just get my phd so i got my phd in psychology and uh, yeah i decided to launch my business in january of 2020 i decided i was going to create a course on death notifications um started producing that in march like literally two days before everything shut down where i lived and then um took about a year to get it up and running and then i've been doing that since i had kind of put my curriculum development and my CE education programs on hold after I got that course up and running because I really had to refocus my attention to school. And now you're catching me at the tail end where I'm about to publish my research, defend my dissertation, become a PhD and do God knows what with my life afterwards. <laughs> I'm sure just go back to school for something else. It seems to be what you smart people do. God just no. keep going to school. Absolutely not. I have yeah. been in school for 13 years. I'm done. I think I, I think I finally, finally got an idea of what I want to do. I don't know. Okay. I don't even know why I did it, but here we are. <laughs> Can't help yourself. So tell me about, so what drove you to do the death notification? What what was so important about that or what happened that that was like, oh, this is going to be my thing because you're, you're in it and you, it's, it's a pillar of what mm -hmm. you um, study and, and well, what, first of all, what are you getting your, what's your thesis about or what are you defending soon? Um, ironically, it's about, psychedelic therapy oh so it has nothing to do so my, it's funny my 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 degree it, the program I'm in is depth psychology and more often than not people think that i misspelled death and they like autocorrect it like the depth <laughs> psychology and i'm like no it's it's depth <laughs> it's depth it's a lot of subconscious work a lot of unconscious yeah. i of con subconscious unconscious get kind of you know used interchangeably because if you say unconscious in the medical field it has a different connotation than psychology. So I yes. try to use subconscious instead. Um, but my, my dissertation was on um, ketamine assisted psychotherapy for firefighters with PTSD. That's right. I, think and, I, I tried to send you someone, I think, right. I, I, it was a while ago. Maybe I did. Maybe I sent it to him. Oh yeah. Because um, I was doing just, I chose to stay in the state of California. Okay. Um, my, my dissertation, 
dissertation started off as one thing and ended up with another. So unfortunately, I was not allowed to find a bunch of firefighters to give ketamine to. My school <laughs> said no. Right. I had plenty of willing participants. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, there's ethical things with that, too, because, you know, PTSD diagnosis and, and the things that come with that, the implications of that are not light. And so obviously I respected that. Yeah. Um, but then I wanted to find firefighters who had already done ketamine to interview mm. about it and could not find that. Um, there were also limitations on, I could not go find it. They had to find me, which is a little right. challenging in itself. Yeah. Then um, I finally said, fuck it. We're, we're running out of time. It was like almost December. And I said, I have every intention of finishing this. I was three chapters down two to go. And I still had my research and my, you know, analyzing my data to do. And I said, well, let me interview union leaders. And let me just interview them about the idea of it. Let me, at this point, I'm not going to change the world with this. Let me just do what I need to do to get this done. Sure. And um, I talked to my team and they said, okay, like they gave me limitations. I couldn't find union leaders from the two counties I still work in in California. Um, and I just said, okay, that's fine. And I just put it out there. And at this point, because it wasn't going to be firefighters talking about their trauma, it was going to be about these union representatives that were speaking on behalf of the collective firefighters that they represented. I could find them. So I was allowed to reach out on LinkedIn. I was allowed to go to their union pages and email them directly. And I mean, I sent out like 60 invites and I got, I got my eight, I got eight people. Wow. What, so what's the consensus so, or what's the uh, general thought from the union leadership about, about that? Like, were you, were you more or less concerned on would they, are they in favor of it or would it be, um, allowed eventually, or what were you trying to get from them? I had no objective other than to finish my damn dissertation. I'll be completely <laughs> honest with you, which is, which is just, which is great because I was already going into it having an understanding and an awareness of psychedelic therapy and being in favor of it. But I genuinely wanted to know, like, where does this potentially fit hmm. in the fire service, and what are their what are their their perspectives of it as it stands and what i found was a couple of things were number one most of them had no idea it existed hmm. most of them did not know that ketamine was being utilized in this in this um way they didn't know that it was legal um or they had heard about it but didn't really know much about it only like one of them flat out said yeah i know it's being used for this like didn't know it was being used for pain control in the pre-hospital setting because sure. they didn't where he worked they didn't have it okay um, and every single one of them was open-minded to it. And some of them that were like, if this is something that could potentially prevent our department from having another suicide, mm -hmm. I'm a hundred percent for it. Right. Like that was the consensus of it. Others had a little bit more conservative, like, well, we need to make sure this, this, not, but I don't see why not. Yeah. Like they, it was a good balanced. I was very surprised at how many had this positive, like, this is how we can make it happen kind of thing. Um, some things that also really surprised me was quite a few opened up about some of their members already doing psychedelic work with shamans and hmm. ceremonies um, independently, independently of the department. I mean, these are things that are not, I mean, they're, they're in the process of being decriminalized right. in California, but they're not legal yet. Hmm. And it's, we're at that point, you know, one guy that I interviewed said that his department had, um, he talked about 
a suicide his department had. Everything changed after that um, as far as their efforts to try and bring more mental health and whatnot. And he was talking two statistics from his department really stood out to me. And one was that four members have been out on PTSD injuries for a year and are nowhere near coming back, he says. They've cost the department over $3 million. Holy cow. 3.7, he said. Oh, jeez. And on top of that, separate from that, this is all published data. Everybody was interviewed um, anonymously. Nobody knows who the department is. Um, But he said on top of that that they had a stretch of eight months where two to three firefighters per month were being treated for suicidal ideations. Wow. He's had multiple try and attempt suicide since the first suicide happened, some on duty that were interrupted by a call. And so he just let every persona you can imagine down and lay it all out there to wow. say, we're, we're sick. We need help. Yeah. And I was just very moved by it. So I'm very interested to see what happens with it once it's I I mean nobody may I mean potentially nobody will read it that's what we're told our first day of school like your mom's (laughs) gonna read it and your and your chair and that's that's might be what it is but we'll see well you can come back on and read it here you can come back anytime and read that that's a whole nother topic that we just spent another 12 minutes on yeah that uh, we still haven't gotten to the point where I wanted you on it originally we will get to it okay (laughs) Tell me about the death notification. <laughs> and I'm not cutting off because right. I don't want to hear about it. I want to hear more about all this stuff. But um. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, okay. So essentially when I was 18 years old, my mom died. And it was a couple of weeks before I started EMT school. And I, I had to deliver. Basically, I had to tell her best friend that she died. Mm. Um, it seems like a lot for an 18-year-old to do. But truthfully, my sister was the one taking the brunt of everything. She called everybody. And um, she just had this point where she was just exhausted. She goes, can you just call her for me and call Debbie? And I was like, okay, fine. And I'm thinking ignorantly that this is not going to be hard. Like I was still in it. I mean, I didn't cry the first two weeks when I mom died. Like it was a lot hmm. just going on. And there's so much to do that you just, you're not in your body in those moments. Like, especially there's, there's burying somebody and there is being responsible for paying for everything and buying it and coordinating and all this stuff like that, that has to happen within like a week. And uh, essentially it went sideways really fast. It was pretty traumatic. It was not, I mean, I I would say that's probably the first time I cried was after I had to tell her friend and then um, her friend was upset. And then the friend's husband called me and fucking chewed me out because of how I did it, that I did it so poorly. And Oh yeah, it was, it was a nightmare, (laughs) but you know, What's, what's really ironic is I had already signed up for EMT school and um, I knew I was going to be starting in a couple of weeks and I told myself, well, it's okay. Like, this is, this is fine. I'm 18. I don't know how to do this. I've never been to a funeral before, much less, you know, now I'm dead. Um, when I go to EMT school, they'll teach me how to do this right. Hmm. And that was really cute of me to think that. Yeah, um, I can't imagine the happened. farthest thing from EMT school. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you get into it and you, you work with an FTO and I remember my first dead body and I remember the first time that, you know, we had, I saw somebody else do it and have to tell somebody, but you know, that lesson never kind of came around. And then I I started really looking for it again when um, I was in paramedic school and uh, I watched a very interesting, very poor um, 
delivery of a death notification mm. and I'm not going to say it, but, um, <laughs> but I watched the, I watched the poor delivery. And I remember in that moment realizing by, by then I had been in the field about eight years when I went to Mexico and I remember realizing, Oh, nobody taught my teachers how to do this either. Hmm. That's why nobody taught me. Um, and I had good teachers. I had very good teachers. And I thought to myself, okay, this is a bigger deal. And so instead of learning how to do it and teaching myself how to do it, I copied what I was exposed to and I learned how to avoid it. So I avoided when the family came into the hospital, I avoided looking at them. I avoided engaging with them in any way because it, it truly just scared me. Yeah. Like the idea that if like, almost like if I don't look at them, they can't see me either. <laughs> I kind of had that attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, and honestly, I was with the private ambulance company. I wasn't the fire department. The fire department had more of a scene presence where I worked. And so I just figured it was, it was the guy with mustaches job. Like mm -hmm. he looks the oldest one. Like he's the elder here. Like you can, you can talk to, I'm not the adult here. I mean, I was a kid <laughs> when I started. So yeah. that's what I could tell myself until I couldn't. And then I think the way I say it is the EMS gods had enough of my shit and I just kept finding myself in positions where I had to have those conversations. And then I eventually got better at it, but I, but I had to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And then I started saying like, why aren't we doing this more? And so high performance CPR and staying on scene for 20 minutes and doing all that and don't transport if they're, you know, active CPR, that was not a thing where I worked in neighboring counties. It was, but it wasn't where I worked. And yeah. so I started seeing that the protocol was going to change. I was very involved with the medic program and the paramedics that we put out into our County. At that point, I had worked with them for several years. I was teaching primary classes and I was there every week for skills. And I thought, why are we pushing this, new practice and not supporting teaching them how to deal with the family. Hmm. Like this sounds like a recipe for disaster. And so I just kind of fell on deaf ears for a while. And I thought, well, I've got to go get my master's anyways. I found one of the courses or one of the programs was in grief and bereavement. And so I said, sign me up. And all of my focus was on death and first responders. And so I created my, my three RC course that I have right now, it's three hours right now. It's expanded since then, but um, the three hours that are on my line right now, that core curriculum was developed as a result of my graduate school. Wow. You know, I was thinking uh, with our little talk before, I was thinking what my role was. Cause I told you, I kind of took that role on probably in the past 10 years or so. I, I tried to be the person talking to the family for one reason or another, whether it was because I thought I communicate with them better or my officer wasn't um, in the position to at the time or whatever it was. I never really put the two and two together about our new protocols because we're under the same thing. We were under 20 minutes before, and then during COVID, we went down to 12 minutes, which was intense. <laughs> um, oh, man. And then, uh, and now we're back up to 30 minutes on scene. And before, I remember, much like you were saying, like if, if you didn't see the family as you were moving the person out of the house because you're transporting no matter what, uh, if you didn't mm -hmm. see them on the way out of the house, then when you got to the hospital, you just warn the doctor or the staff, that, like, hey, the family's going to be coming up here and they're worked up. And that was the end of it, right? Um, if you mm -hmm. did see someone on the way out of the house, you might have one extra person to say like, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's the situation. They're not breathing now. They don't have a pulse, but we're still working and we'll see you at the hospital. So it's still a relatively um, harmless interaction because you're not telling them anything definitive. But now, yeah, yeah I mean, I never, I never really put it together why, that, why I've had so many more opportunities in the past five years to do this is because we're, we're leaving people. We're leaving people in their home. Hey. And turning the scene exactly. over to police. Yeah. And I don't remember who it was. Um, so 
high performance CPR, I think like you, you think of, you know, if you think of an area that is well known for the high performance CPR, you usually think like King County, Washington, and you hear yeah. something yeah. out of, you know, Phoenix or something like that. And I remember talking to somebody and I'm trying to remember exactly what they said, but I said, you know, what we, we teach this importance of staying on scene and don't, um, you know, don't transport with active CPR. And I said, but what happens when all this doesn't work? And the guy totally dismissed me, like almost like, oh, well, you know, nobody dies in King County or something like that. And I was like, you've oh. got to be kidding me. Like, yeah, yeah. are we serious? Yeah. And I just, it, it burst my bubble for the, for the, and I'm not saying that they weren't well-intended because we do need to be reaching for the resuscitation. We need to be re reaching for the CPC scores of one and two and healthy outcomes. I get it. But where have we created this idea that there isn't room to prepare for both? Hmm. The idea that we can't prepare for both is horse. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, what's the, I, I'm going to botch it, but the, Rosk rate na nationwide, or let's say even in those areas, right? The Rosk rate in Seattle and the surrounding communities is still only, it's like 20%. It's not, we're not bringing back three quarters of people that go into full arrest. So yeah, why wouldn't you prepare for the inevitable where if you think of it that way, you know, and you have eight full arrests in a month, you know, six of them you're going to leave in the living room. And so well, let's you, put it this way. The death rate of the human race is a hundred percent eventually. Yeah. Right. Yeah eventually right but nobody wants to talk about that yeah well everybody, we can talk about it. i just don't want to tell somebody it <laughs> now you're right yeah that that makes sense yeah. but you're right that i'm so glad you got the right statistics because a lot of people and i'm not dogging them i mean it's a great system i have a lot of admiration for the stuff that they do especially the way that they utilize bls units what what i've seen anyways on the outside looking in it's very admirable um but when you break down the the rates that that make the headlines in our industry. Um, it's patients that were in VFib or VTAC upon arrival had bicenter CPR, had a AED between, you know, whatever, and it was a witness arrest. Mm. It's like, let, let's talk about all the people then. Like you were you were missing an entire demographic that still requires some sort of emotional response, some sort of psycho they call it psychological first aid sometimes is the word or just some sort of compassionate addressing them. And when we fail to prepare the provider who is going to directly interact with them, we lead them feeling inadequate, incompetent, um, second guessing themselves, and it leads to avoidant behavior instead. Well, that, that second guess themselves and, and a letdown is probably the biggest one. I can, um, we can talk about this on here again too. Like we, we kind of got into it before. I, I remember very few patients in terms of full arrests or um, ROSC even, I, very few. I remember several um, conversations I've had with family members. Like I remember sitting in this kitchen over here. I remember sitting in that living room over there. I remember being on this scene over here, like pretty clearly. Um, I remember a few of them through COVID because it was just so different than what we were kind of how we've been operating for the past 12 or 13 years or how, how I've been operating. Um, so I remember those conversations. I remember the times where I think, okay, we did our job well, unfortunate outcome, um, but we didn't leave anything. We didn't leave any, any stone unturned, essentially. We had a complete scene by the time we left that thing. Through all the way through communication, mm -hmm. uh, resolution of some sort, handing over to the PD, nothing, the, the outcome was, was poor, um, but 
the scene was managed well. And then I remember other ones where um, either I did a poor job communicating and running the scene or I witnessed it and I was like, not only did we not bring this person back, which was likely unrealistic at the time, but we also left the family in worse condition than we found them to. And that that mm-hmm. was what feels really bad. Like through through our actions, we've proven we can't change the situation in terms of that person surviving. Um, but we do have an opportunity not to make everything worse. And if we flub those opportunities, then then not only did we do what they hoped to do, but we insulted them on the way out of the door. Yeah, I will say that I agree. Um, I resonate with that. I don't remember many of my dead patients. I remember their families. That's the part that imprints me the most yeah. and on my psyche um, and leaves me feeling terrible sometimes when I stop and think about it. But something you brought up um, earlier in our conversation was that, and I'm not going to say this for you, but essentially, you're. let me put it this way. When my mom died, those first responders, that fire department that responded, um, made a huge positive impact on the way that both my sister and I grieved, especially my sister, because my sister lives with a lot of, she could have easily blamed herself. She was in the perfect position to blame herself for the long run because my mom was in the bathroom when she left for the gym. And when she came back, she was still in the bathroom. Mm. So what do you think automatically this, you know, she was... 27 28 at the time what do you think she's automatically thinking to herself when she realizes that her mom's dead in the bathroom yeah is that she was dead when i left or she was she needed help when i left what if i had you know just walked in there or if i had said bye or all these things she could have said and they they stopped it like they Mm. literally stopped her in her tracks and told her that it wouldn't have made a difference whether or not that was actually true Mm. i don't know like honestly they didn't even know either but they had the authority in that moment to reassure her that it wasn't her fault because it wasn't right. But at 27 years old coming home, realizing your mom's dead, that that's not, that's not a train of thought. That's not a logical path that we take. And there were some other things that he did for me as well. And I remember thinking to myself when they left that day, there is no way they walked away, patting themselves on the back thinking we did it boys. We did a good job. (laughs) We fixed that. Right. Right. At all. Yeah. At all. But the outcome was a healthy grieving process to women who can speak of their mother's death in a not so dysfunctional way. Like we've, we've healed from it. Let me, let me just say it was, it was a household full of very emotionally charged uh, women. There was a lot of women in the family. Um, There are a lot of women in my family and two devastated young girls, Hmm. daughters, who didn't have my dad lived my dad lives in another country like there was no other parent in this house right they probably walked away doubting that they did anything meaningful because if you measure the success of your efforts based on how that person immediately reacts while you're there you're never going to be satisfied you have to trust that you're doing the right thing even if they are just losing their shit and breaking down and totally devastated because that's just what grief looks like. And it's okay. You're not there to fix the grief. You're there to allow it and just trust that you are doing something that's going to make a difference in the bigger picture that you never get the privilege of seeing. Sounds impossible. I know. Just take my word for it. (laughs) (laughs) One more vote in the ignorant bucket coming my way. Trust Um, me. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I, I just hope that I can, I, I get it. Like there's no, nobody's done peer reviewed, double blind placebo. That shit doesn't exist for stuff like this. Right. It doesn't, you can't get a clinical controlled trial out of a human experience. Hmm. But I can at least share mine and I can at least collect other people's and I can at least share those testimonies and bring them together to formulate some sort of insight as to what it's like to be on the other side. Yeah. Well, I can Hopefully. tell you the way I would measure success would be two things, right? Like w- w- sometimes we get the out, the outright shows of um, appreciation from whatever situation is. And then the family comes back to the fire station and brings us cookies or whatever. And um, says, thanks for picking me up off the floor. Um, when I, when grandma fell down, thanks for picking her up and taking her to the hospital. So that's one measure of success. The other one is, is slightly difficult, more difficult to read, but, um, you know, we're, I work in a busy city. And so we see we're out in the public all the time, whether it's inspections or shopping, or just, we go walk around downtown cause it's a really cool downtown and a lot of architecture we can train on. Um, some of the most fulfilling moments I've had is where I'll see a patient, uh, and they have no clue who I am. Because of whatever circumstance it was, I know that uh, they turned out well, and I was a zero factor in their brain after the fact. Like, I couldn't have mattered Mm. one bit, and that makes me feel good. I will tell you this, that when it comes to those those people that came to my house, I'm pretty sure they were all men, um, could not pick them up. I could not pick them out in a lineup if my my life deserved that, depended on it. That's it. Yeah. I, I couldn't pick them out. I could not pick them out in a lineup. I know what city they work for, obviously. Um, I entered the field within weeks, months after that event um, mm. in that same county, in that same area. Um, but I will tell you, I did run into the nice story. I did run into the officer that was there hmm. um, years later when I was on a call. And he remembered me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, we'll remember he that. Remembered yeah. Me. yeah. He remembered me, but um, you don't, there, there's a Maya Angelou uh, quote that essentially I'm going to botch it, so I'm not going to try and say it exactly out of respect for her, um, but essentially says people will remember how you, how you made them feel. Right, right. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And that's what you have to, you know, I just posted actually a, a, an article to my Instagram story before we jumped on. And it's about this oncologist that was having trouble delivering bad news. Now, oncologists usually have to deliver, you know, you've got unoperable, untreatable cancer kind of news to people that they develop relationships with over the time of their treatment, their course of their treatment with them. And he was just feeling like he couldn't stop being robotic. Hmm. And his dad gave him advice because his dad was a psychologist in the ER for several years. And he said, you just have to be present with them. Just have to listen to them. Yeah. Just have to actually make it personal. Don't sit there and try and memorize an acronym. You'll come off robotic. That's true. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling that story about your uh, the origin of all this. I mean, it's it's incredibly important. You know, it's it it doesn't just vouch to your credibility in the in the field, but uh, from my side as someone who's kind of actively giving out these communications. Um, that was that was helpful for helpful for me also. Yeah, and I I hope that and I'll leave it with this is that I I hope that at the very least you anybody that walks away from this understands that the objective the outcome isn't to fix what you're immediately seeing, especially if it's an emotion. It's it's 
that grief is very messy and it's important to experience. I think the worst thing that we can do is try and interrupt somebody's grieving process by stopping them from crying, stopping mm. them from being upset. But we can definitely kick it off, right? And that's something we talked about um, a little bit before. <laughs> was like you can be the, the starter crystal for that grief. Correct. Yeah. And it can feel like you're being the messenger, which isn't always fun. Yeah. And I was telling you that one of the most, one of the most, not violent, one of the most um, animated reactions I've had to it was recently. And this family just was not um, comprehending what was going on. I mean, they were essentially because of the layout of the house, they were in full view of the patient the entire time. It was, uh, there was, there was at least six to eight people in this little room, um, which was a kitchen attached to the living room. And the person was in the living room. And, you know, you had like a couple there that was the aunt and uncle, a couple there that was the nephew, all kinds of family members, including the wife. And, uh, you know, they watched us do everything. We were there for 30 minutes, went through everything, no change in the patient status from, from the get go. And, uh, the whole time they were, they were seeing this person not moving on the floor and they were seeing all the things we were doing to them. And I was explaining it to them along the way. And every time I would give them an update of nothing's changed, we're still, uh, we have this mechanical CPR device on them, which is making his heart beat because his is not. And we're, we've inserted this tube in his mouth and throat to breathe for him because he's not breathing. They were very receptive to it. Almost like, okay, cool. Tell me when my brake job's going to be done in my car. Like that was the level of thing that we were dealing with. And uh, so we completed our protocol, no change, called for termination in the field and uh, turned off the, the, the uh, what's it called? The Lucas. So we turned off the mechanical device, um, turned off the oxygen, started cleaning up. And so now the person's just laying there and still they were kind of not clear on it. And so I had to go tell them very clearly, like this person has died Um we've called for a, a, a time of death from the hospital and they pronounced him dead and we're going to be stopping our efforts. And as soon as I said dead, it was like everything hit them all at once. It was an explosion yeah. of the, the eight to 10 people that were in there um, to the point where myself and the police officer just stood there for four or five minutes and just stood there as someone to yell at and uh, to cry at for a little bit mm-hmm. and just, mm-hmm. just kind of stood there and, one person would come over and are you sure he's dead? I'm like, yes, yes, he is. And they go back to the group and they would start again. And then another person would come over like, and just say like, he's gone. That's it. I'm like, that's it. He's, he's, he's not coming back. He's dead. And he would go back to the group and would start again. And that happened probably four or five times. Um, and then the kind of the first wave passed and then I explained to him that they were going to be dealing with the cops and the cops will answer all your questions and the fire department's leaving. Um, and I got a couple handshakes on the way out the door. People stopped and said thanks, but we're still actively kind of uh, in that moment, and, and then you got to go. And so when I got out, when I got out to the, the engine, one of the guys was like, what did you say to them? <laughs> and I was like, I had to tell them that this person died. Like, they just weren't picking up on it. And I said, but I follow this this woman on Instagram, and she has this death notification course, and one thing she says is, like, the more clear – yeah. The more clear you are with your communication, the less room you leave for interpretation or guessing, the better it is. Like the grieving process will start immediately. Just be clear and be concise and um, and make it understandable. And I said, then the grieving process can start. And he goes, uh, well, congratulations, man. It started. It started all <laughs> over you. And I was like, no kidding. And uh, so yeah. it was one of those things, but I was like, that it was just one of those instances where I, I was extremely grateful. I, I uh, 
was exposed to your content because I had that in the back of my head of like, well, we got to go to the big guns. Like we got to go all the way to the most plain language you can think of to get this, this message across and, and get this going. And it did, it did in a big way, but, um, so let's get into that. If, uh, you said you, you have a infographic and some resources that you put up. Um, so I'd love to leave people with just, just the framework, just the idea of what you would suggest when it comes to this stuff. And then they can, they can and should obviously pursue it further to get the three hour course. Um, but, uh, where can we start? Yeah. Obviously, I would love everybody to take my course. It's not feasible for everybody. Either they don't need to use it all the time, they don't want to do it online, or it's not you know, financially feasible. It's a $39 course. Um, pretty much everything that's on my uh, Instagram can also be found in the course. There's some additional things that obviously, if you take the course that you get, and some handouts, and so what I'll go over are a couple of the things that I have published also on my Instagram. And so... Um, one of the things I'll point out, though, is when they kept coming back to you and asking again, even after you told them that they were dead and they kept kind of checking back in and they kept going back and reporting back to the family member, what, in theory, if this, this applies here, <laughs> yeah. what stage of grief might that have been? Denial. Yes. Yes. The first or and the so seventh. Whether, uh, yeah, right. And in their case, so denial can be a coping mechanism for an experience that's just too difficult for the psyche to process. And your job was the hardest job to do, which was to invite them out of that stage. A lot of times what we see, a, a lot of times when I ask people, what do you think the most common form of, of grief is, or the, common, the most common expression of grief is on scene of a cardiac arrest, a lot of times people say anger, but I would say, look for the denial and look for the bargaining. Hmm. I'm not saying that anger doesn't happen. I'm not saying it's always denial or bargaining, but look for those two things, because what's going to happen is that when we get on scene, we see a patient that's clinically dead, and we're trying to reverse that death. When they see their family member that stop breathing and start stop, you know, their heart beating. They see someone that's still alive. Hmm. They don't see them as dead until we and you, especially the one in the field, until you, the point of authority confirms what they're already scared to admit to themselves. So it's a hard job, but again, you were very clear with them. And another, I love Brene Brown. She says that clear is kind. Hmm. It's very simple. Clear is kind. Be direct, be to the point, especially when someone's brainstem is activated and they're in that flight or fight response, which is a very understandable state to be in considering their circumstances. Be as clear as possible because any shades, any shade of gray, anything that makes them more confused then when you showed up to tell them whatever it was that you were going to tell them in that interaction when you approached them is unnecessary suffering. And they're going to blame you for that. Man, I wonder how many people are so, thinking back now of, of how they've done these things and, and the specific oh words God. that they use, you know, and, and like... Myself included. Yeah, just wincing. <laughs> like, so, so, and I think you, you... From the materials I've seen from you, you go into that, right? Of like, instead of saying... Um, they're in a better place or they've moved on mm -hmm. or, or something like that, right? Th those are those are pretty much 
ways that make it easier for me to tell someone that they, someone's died. Like those are more, those are softer words for me to say. So I'd rather say those because it doesn't make me feel as bad, but they're not doing the receiver any, any favors. I'm so glad you said it that way because I'm going to tell you exactly why they're more comfortable for you to say. Um, so there's a, there's a, there's a post on my Instagram. It's one of my pinned posts. It's called say this, not that it's one of the PDF documents that's included in the course. And I published this one because it was pretty popular and I, I really liked being able to explain this one to people. It's such a useful reference. Now, empathy drives connection. Sympathy drives some disconnection. We tend to use those terms interchangeably, even though they are very different. And to be sympathetic is not a bad thing, but there is a way that we can do things better. And so that's why when looking at this, um, if, if you're if you're looking at this thing while you're reading this, just go pull it up. So it's a little easier to follow along. But the the sentiments and the statements on the right, they're not the worst thing you can say to somebody. I have said them before. Don't cringe that you said them. Um, they come very naturally to us for this one reason. And I'll tell you why. When we went through grief, when we went through loss for our own personal experience, everyone's been through it in one way or another. But think back to a time maybe that somebody died. When we reach the acceptance stage, a lot of times the things that are listed on the right are the things we said to ourselves that brought us comfort. We told ourselves, it's okay. You're going to be okay. We told ourselves they're in a better place. We rationalized it and said, well, at least they died quickly. At least they're no longer in pain. At least they lived a full life. We might even go as far as to say everything happens for a reason. But the difference is, number one, we came to a state of acceptance. So we were ready to hear that. And number two, nobody else was going to tell me that but me. Right? Nobody else was going to be able to tell me you're going to be okay. Oh, am I? I have no idea what the fuck I'm going to do tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't know. Nobody else on the outside looking in was going to feed that to me. But at the time... When I reached that place of acceptance, for me, my mom had cancer most of my life. I was so grateful that the cancer didn't get her. She beat cancer, stage four, mm. all by herself. Well, not all by herself. She had some medical intervention, but she did it very holistically. Mm. And she was very stubborn, and she went against what a lot of people wanted her to do, including our family and a lot of pressure, but she did it. And I was so grateful she did not die of cancer. She died of a heart attack. But nonetheless, to me, I found a silver lining in that. But do you think anybody could have told me that the day that she died and I would have accepted that and I would have found that comforting? Absolutely not. But there's a reason why we reach for those things because they were comforting to us at one point. And so we try and gift it to somebody else before they're ready to hear it. Mm. So instead of saying they're in a better place, for example, I say, point out something that you can say about them, which is I can tell how much this patient was loved. That was actually something one of the firefighters said to my sister hmm. was he looked around the house and he goes, wow, you guys have a very supportive family. Your mother was very loved. You guys have a very strong support network here. He didn't point out something that was elusive and not quant like not tactfully in front of us. He pointed out the things that were. So he used, he used that's in, the bigger part of in it. that specific case. Then, do you feel like in that 
in that mentioning of it from that authority figure, do you feel like he regalvanized that support system because the authority is now telling you something positive instead of negative? He was more so able to communicate empathetically. And I don't know if that came with wisdom and time. And I mean, I just remember he had gray hair and mustache, so he must have been closer <laughs> to retirement. He wasn't the rookie, let me tell you that. Yeah, yeah. But I will say in that moment, he didn't try to silver line something that really fucking sucked. Hmm. Right? He, he just pointed out what was irrefutable, even in our emotional state, was that we had a really strong family and and they showed up i mean they were there probably faster than them sure honestly and um another one so another example is uh instead so a lot of times we say at least and we say this to people in our personal lives a lot as well um and so any statement any response that you think is going to be supportive if it starts with the words at least i just want you to hesitate i say this all the time all the time all the time <laughs> Oh my God. Most of it, I will say that 50% of it's probably ironic and I'm driving the point home of how bad something is. Um, The other 50% is probably in earnest and I'm just trying to be soft about not, soft about appealing to someone that I, that I want to um, shed a little bright side on something, but I want to be soft about it. Instead, we could say, I wish there was more I could do or say to make it better. Hmm. Sitting in that place of, I can't fix this is very challenging for first responders to do, especially the alphas, the ones who get in there and they, something's broken, they fix it. You're being asked to stand down and do nothing and to admit that you can't do anything about this, but that's not a failure on your part. It just simply is what is. And so instead just admitting, I wish I knew what to say. That's okay. That's honest. Hmm. If we say at least, we're trying to talk them out of their grief. And a lot of times we will say at least when we're the ones that are uncomfortable with what they're experiencing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So um, just to kind of run through this, instead of saying be strong, tell them that they can cry as much as they need. Again, you're allowing for that grief to occur, however that might look. Um, telling them, I can't imagine how you must feel and saying, I understand how you must feel. I ran on a couple of cancer patients. Cancer patients were always my thing um, that I definitely, you know, my own personal experience with it made me treat them a little differently in the sense that I went a little bit more above and beyond, maybe because I felt more comfortable and confident with what they needed. Hmm. And, and just knowing the the things that they probably weren't asking for, but that I could, I could identify it. I could see yeah. it before they, they asked. Right. And um, it would have been so easy when seeing a young girl that was my age taking care of a mother that had cancer, it would have been so easy for me to say, I understand how you feel because I've been through that, that, but I don't Hmm. know. Like you have to let someone's grief be their own unique experience and not try and interject yourself. You utilize the experience that you have to connect with them silently, (laughs) to know that you can confidently show up. You don't have to announce it to them. And then let's, and there's times where, Saying me too is very powerful. Um, I'd say in these acute circumstances and these short periods that we have with them are not it. Um, so it's okay to acknowledge that their grief is unique and that we are separate from it by, by acknowledging that um, it can be very powerful, very comforting. Mm. That sounds so thing, hard to yeah. do. 
because everything we do on the fire department is like there's such pride in knowing how to fix a broken pipe because you saw it uh, two buildings ago or like how to reset an alarm panel or how to attack a basement fire because you're like, oh, I did this 10 years ago. I know how to do this one specifically. And that's like, that's like a point of pride, right? Of like, I know how to do this or I know the situation because I did it before. And Mm -hmm. so to be, um, to have that be the wrong thing to do in the most crucial time is so, it sounds so hard. Um, And I don't want to say wrong thing, because like I said, the things on the right, they're not the worst thing you can say. I've heard way worse. Yeah, that's right. They're not the The, worst things you could say. Does this go back to like, and I I believe in this too, of um, I started saying useful or not useful with a lot of stuff instead of good or bad, because like you said before, Mm -hmm. anger isn't always bad. It's either useful or not. So I don't want to detract from the current point, but yeah, I I, uh, guess that's a still bad habit. Uh, Less useful habit. That's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. Um, instead of saying you're going to be okay, because again, we don't know their circumstances. We don't know if this person was the primary breadwinner, if they had their affairs in order, if they were in severe debt, if they were the, you know, all these different things. We don't know all those things. It's expensive as shit to bury somebody. And most people mm-hmm. don't know that. Most people don't realize that until you've spent $10,000 on a casket, another $7,000 on a headstone. And like, oh. it's just ridiculous how expensive it is to bury people. It's like, planning a wedding in a week it's got all the same components <laughs> sure you know you need to find a church you got to invite the people you got to get the caterer like all those things that add up right yeah, yeah, if yeah. you don't have if you don't have death insurance or life insurance like my mom didn't it's a swift kick in the ass oh. so um you can instead do something useful like ask them who can i call to come be with you because one of the most exhausting things you have to do after living it is going off and telling somebody about it. And sometimes that's just not something we have the space to do in that very moment. So mm-hmm. them offering, who can I call for you is, is a kind gesture. It may not always be accepted, but it's a very kind gesture to give. Um, I already talked about the other two. And then the last one, um, a lot of times we sometimes say everything happens for a reason. Uh, instead say you did everything right by starting CPR before we arrived. And I, yeah. and I emphasize this, that if you get on scene and you had some lay person intervention, uh, I tell my students this all the time and my firefighters, I'm still an EMS coordinator, um, but for a much smaller department, I tell them, I don't care if that person was pumping on their stomach. You tell them that they did a good job. Right. You thank them for what they did and you remind them that their efforts increased their chances of survival. It did not decrease because they will live with that doubt. They will think that they did something wrong because a lot of times in our grief, especially if it gets complicated, um, they will live with this idea that in order to, this goes back to these, emotionally satisfying conclusions they will try and find a way to blame themselves for the reason that this didn't work out ideally and so you have that authority you have that ability and i don't want to say power in a in a in a negative way or a limiting way i should say but you do have that influence on somebody to tell them you did an awesome job thank you so much for helping us because this does usually increase this does increase their chances so everything that could have been done absolutely was done because you were here it's such powerful stuff because it's not even their job to care about that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we show up and it is our job to care and we don't succeed in, in a, a ROSC. That original person will blame themselves even though the pros couldn't do it, you know, when they have yeah. no business even being involved in the situation. But as communities are starting to increase, what is it, um, telephone CPR with the dispatchers, mm-hmm. with yeah. having drones drop off AEDs. If you're not also conditioning the professional for how to acknowledge the layperson, we are asking them to do something very irresponsibly because they will 
that will stick with them. And I know this because every single time I've done a hands-only CPR event somewhere, there is inevitably somebody that comes up and says that they had to do CPR and it prompted them to go take a course because they felt like they did it horribly because the person died. Mm. And I'm talking, there's, I, I was very humbled by uh, a high school event I did. And there were 14 year olds that told me they did CPR on their, on their siblings. Mm. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? But this is a trend. And anybody who's heavily involved with those outreach programs that do this have noticed it as well. I don't have any quantifiable data to go off of it. But you know what? Those five people I can think of right now are enough to tell me that this is an important practice that the professional should keep in mind. That if if you're not taught to look for those things, you're not going to see it. Well, it makes a lot of sense, though, because how else are you supposed to measure success with CPR if you're a layperson? Like it, it, we do it all measure, the time. It's, <laughs> you know, it, it, well, it's not like, oh, you're doing a good job with a two inch compression and full chest recoil and all that. Like they don't know, look for that. They're just like, well, I did this thing that's supposed to save people and it didn't save them. So I must've done a bad job. We did the same thing in science though. Take a look at, have you ever heard the debate between mechanical and manual CPR? Um, I know, but I can only assume, I would assume that mechanical is better. Okay. Well, the debate is, there is no study or there's no re- irrefutable data to show that mechanical CPR is somehow superior to manual CPR because they all end up dying. Oh my God. Because okay. they're measuring their measurement of success is whether or not the person <laughs> dies, not what the compression fraction was, not what the interruptions were, not with the endurance of a mechanical device versus a person. Wow. They're measuring it against death the thing that we all are inevitably going to do i'm like you know what i want to see what the oxygenation of this person was versus that person i want to see what the interruptions on this zoll report versus that zoll report are they're oh, not yeah. measuring things that they're not they're measuring just death wow I, like, I can tell you I, there's been at least 10 times where i've been like oh thank god we have that thing because that things. that movement down the hall or that move down the stairs or that um that getting that person out of the, you know, the hoarder house or something like that would have been impossible to complete CPR in the, in the, during the duration of that move, just not possible at all. And then you're like halfway convinced. Go ahead. No, it's it's just, it's just so incredible. (laughs) Like, why would you argue against it? it? It does. It does everything. It literally does everything you cannot do. The people who argue against it are the ones who never had to do those things. Is why. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) Makes sense. They didn't, yeah. They didn't, and I, I, I joke all the time that I halfway became a paramedic because I was so disgusted by CPR. Like I, the, the cracking of the ribs yeah. is like my thing. Like <laughs> give me, give me open fractures, give me vomit in the hair. Like I don't even care if it's like, just don't give me crack crepitus. Mm-mm. Yeah. Nope. Yucky. Nope. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's hands down. It comes down to the fact that the people who are, who are criticizing and who are studying this and who are saying against, you know, th- there's plenty of flaws with mechanical devices. Sure. But I, I don't want to measure it against who dies and who lives when our, our, our <laughs> success fl- rates 10%. <laughs> you know what the flaws in the mechanical devices is? The person putting it on. Like the human yeah. is still the, the falling down point yeah. of the mechanical device. I promise. Correct. Yeah. We want that to be the only thing that we apply to this person when it comes to manual CPR. I mean, it's just, come on. Come on. Oh, I didn't have the endurance for that. Trust me. No, that's a non-starter. That's a that's a fun one to like. Okay, and just walk away from it. <laughs> just yep. go go yell at yourself in the corner. Um, but hopefully, hopefully that little that's just one part of it, right? There's no way right. that even if we were to talk about if we were to continue this conversation even longer, that we could encapsulate everything. There's no way that even my three-hour course 
is everything. It is a starter. It is a foundation. It is a fundamental, uh, you know, kind of just sets the tone for it to be built upon and practiced upon. Right. And every organization and paramedics program that takes on my course, um, I tell them that, you know, I've gotten asked, well, how often should we, you know, revisit this? And I said, every time you practice CPR, every BLS class, every ACLS class, every high performance, you know, renewal thing, every time you are practicing mega code, you need to be having a discussion, or I should say, it needs to be part of the overall curriculum. Right. You need to be discussing what happens when the patient dies and let some of them die, even though the student or the trainee or the cadet, whoever did everything right. Yeah. Make it a little more realistic. Yeah, that we've definitely incorporated that in our, in our mega code and just our general training, like the incorporation of failures into it by design. Good. It's like, it's like, well, well, you weren't going to get your way yeah. to the point where the, the administrator will be like, you're not working your way out of this one. Just figure out what you're going to do next. <laughs> like nice. this is it. And, um, so it's good because it makes you think critically, but also a little more freely in a, in some circumstances. You're like, well, I really do have the option to just try what I think might work then. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's another conversation altogether. Can you believe we've been talking for nearly 90 minutes? Uh Oh, <laughs> you told me some of your podcasts were 15 minutes. So. <laughs> 12 even. Yeah. <laughs> got some real short ones. I got Yeah. This would be a longer one. Um, well, I'll let you Not vote though. Editing. Do you want to do you want to cut out the first twenty eight minutes of uh, theory? No, it's getting some good stuff in there. No, I mean you can you can do whatever you want. It's not going to bother me. I'm not going to listen to it. I was already there. <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> that's that. for somebody else to listen to. <laughs> I don't like hearing my own voice, so yeah. you know, even doing yeah, even doing stories are hard on Instagram for me sometimes. Yeah, I got to put some chapters in there. I might have to actually put some chapters in this one. Great. That's, more work that's actually <laughs> happy to help yeah <laughs> all right why don't you um give out your instagram and stuff so people can find you okay so the best way to find me is um i'm the most active on instagram at emergency resilience um you can find me also on twitter facebook uh i started a tiktok but i haven't put anything on it yet but i told myself i was gonna start um youtube all that stuff but yeah you can find me most on instagram and you can find some resources there if you go to emergencyresilience.com um, courses. You can find my death notification course. I am currently working on uh, four additional ones that are kind of in the um, they're in the production stage, and those will be out before the end of the year. Do they do they allow people on TikTok that used to have answering machines? Yeah. They you, let me on there. Are you so. aged out on TikTok at this point? Is that one of the questions? I know. Like, <laughs> do you remember what a you know, answering machine message is? If so, leave. Apparently, <laughs> apparently the um, Gen Zs are being upset and disrupted by the millennials and the Gen Xers that are coming on at TikTok. But I will tell you, I learn the most. I learn the most fascinating things on TikTok over any other app. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. I, I don't I will contribute say there's on been a few. It. There's been a few like firehouse uh, meals that have come from TikTok, and I mm. I would give them fifty fifty at this point. There's been some goofy okay. ones, but I'll give okay. it fifty fifty. But uh, yeah, I just kind of imagine TikTok. You know, like when you have to authenticate something, it's like pick out all the bridges in these pictures. Um, mm-hmm. They pick out like pick out the answering machine, and if you picked it, you're like ah, you're too old, get out of here. I like can't we believe fooled that. you. I had a flip phone until I was twenty six. Okay, I just want that to be very clear. I had well, a flip I'm with phone you. until I, I was twenty six. I get it. I get it. But it doesn't make not make it not funny. 
Um, that's hilarious. True. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for everything. So uh, this has been. I, I want to have you back on when and talk about your psychedelic uh, treatment research stuff. Um, that that carries yeah, a common thread in here too from a, a pretty early on episode with Ryan Maines, who does ketamine therapy now. Um, Fantastic. So yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Um, anything else? No, that's all good. Thanks for having me. I had a good time. Yeah, very, very good. I'm I'm surprised it went 90 minutes. I shouldn't be though, but um, it was good. I think this was like a time warp one. This is uh, we're this is gonna be a big 90 minute episode, and people are gonna love it. Okay. Well, awesome. I look forward to seeing it come out.